Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This is a special kind of concert that I just love to conduct. It's essentially a composer portrait. The way I put it together is that I called our dear friend Joan Tower, the great American composer who's celebrating her 75th birthday this year and who lives right in our neighborhood in the Hudson Valley and teaches at Bard College and the Bard College Conservatory. And I asked Joan if I could possibly have the orchestra build a concert around her. In essence, sort of tell the story of her music, her life, her past. And I asked her to actually help curate the concert, to, in essence, help me design the concert to feature some of the great composers who've had the most influence on her. And of course, the center of the concert, I knew that we wanted to put one of her masterpieces, a work that I, I knew we'd be recording, a short piano concerto called Rapids. So uh, Joan was very honored and flattered to be asked. She said she'd never been asked by a conductor to help design her, her own concert about herself. And she immediately mentioned the two composers who have had the greatest influence on her as being Ludwig van Beethoven and Igor Stravinsky, both of whom, among many other great attributes, share Joan's love of incredibly vital and vibrant rhythms. Joan herself, although she was born in New York State, grew up largely in South America, I believe in Bolivia and Ecuador and Peru. And so she was much influenced by and had great uh, interaction with all the great percussion instruments in those countries. And some of her first really formative musical experiences were playing drums in these bands uh, when her Inca nanny would drop her off at different celebrations where the Inca nanny, as Joan described it, wanted to go looking for a man. And little Joan at the age of seven or eight would be sitting there near the band and would be handed a, a maraca or some kind of percussion instrument and get to jam with the band. And I think that that really began her lifelong interest in not only percussion instruments, but also in just the incredibly vital aspect of rhythm in music. So in discussing the program, we decided to start with an Igor Stravinsky work, to end with a great Beethoven symphony, and in between to put this wonderful work of Jones Rapids, along with a new work to be commissioned from one of her present or past students, and she selected a, a lovely young man named Connor Brown, and that's in fact how the concert evolved. In addition, we knew that we wanted to feature Joan's wonderful colleague down at Bard College, the pianist Blair McMillan, as the soloist in the concerto, so he was signed onto the project as well. So what we have, in essence, is a wonderful musical portrait of the great Joan Tower. It begins with a rather early work of Igor Stravinsky's, not terribly early, and that, of course, his most famous works are those three ballets he wrote as a very young man, while still in his 20s and early 30s, The Firebird, Petrushka, and The Rite of Spring. And then, now having established himself with those three monumental works as one of the most important and exciting meteoric figures in the firmament of contemporary concert music, he sort of had to start wrestling with this question of what exactly his language should evolve into. Because in essence, those three works, while 
two of them, the second and third Petrushka and, and the Rite of Spring being very forward-looking, also owed a great deal to his antecedents, to his beloved teacher Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, the great uh, Russian composer, who, who, who used the same kind of very exotic romantic gestures that we find in the Firebird in his, in his works, and to all sorts of other 19th century antecedents. Uh, so Stravinsky was, in essence, forging his own voice. And as the years passed, uh, he began to develop a real passionate interest in the music of uh, the time of one of his favorite composers, Mozart, in the classical period, and uh, grew to love this music and know it extremely well, and wanted, in essence, to begin trying to base some of his musical gestures on uh, sort of 18th century, 18th uh, century uh, gestures and Mozartian classical ideas. But being very much a contemporary composer, uh, he wanted to, in essence, refract and, in a sense, almost shatter those standard uh, ideas of music and, and re order them. It's much the way I always think of the analogies between Stravinsky and Picasso. I always find very great that, you know, Picasso went through all these different incredible stages. He always stayed very much Picasso and his his art always looked identifiable and recognizable as his own. And yet he, he passed through all those different periods of the blue period and the cubist period and so on and so forth. And Stravinsky very much the same, always the same, very clear, unique, distinctive voice, but always searching for a different way of organizing and of expressing music. So at this time, he, he was looking back to classical models and, and really pioneering this idea of neoclassicism. I always think it's very much like, like Picasso's cubist paintings, that you've got these images and you can kind of tell what they are, but they're all kind of shattered and reorganized and changed around and made rather strange. Stravinsky was, in essence, doing the same thing with with 18th century um, standards and, and practices. So among the first pieces that Stravinsky wrote in this neoclassical language was a, a charming and very unusual work for eight somewhat random-sounding wind instruments, the octet for winds. Uh, I say random-sounding because it's not for a woodwind quintet with some additional players or a brass quintet. It's for a solo flute, solo clarinet, two bassoons, two trumpets, and two trombones. So I must say, the work is surprisingly seldom performed, even though it's one of Stravinsky's most uh, interesting and beautiful pieces, uh, because there just aren't that many groups that can put together that ensemble. It's usually a little too small for an orchestra concert, a little too big for a chamber concert, so it only occurs usually, it gets performed at universities and places where there are lots of different instrumentalists around. Stravinsky began, actually, with a little waltz, and you'll hear the waltz in the middle of the middle movement. It's a three-movement work, a rather brief work, maybe 14 or 15 minutes. First movement, Sinfonia, very much along the lines of if you were going to reimagine the classical symphony first movement in 20th century terms, has a slow, rather majestic introduction, and then a very lively, almost marchy kind of main subject that goes on through the body of the first movement. The second movement is a theme with variations, and as I mentioned, the, the variation that he wrote first was this little strange but beautiful a little waltz, not even thinking that this was going to be a, a, a set of variations, but he thought that the theme of the waltz was kind of intriguing, and so he pulled out the main elements of it and created this fascinating set of very beautiful and odd and arresting uh, variations. So you'll hear kind of in the middle of the theme and variations this lovely little waltz in three, but uh, around it there's this kind of very exciting and fast, loud music, and then at the end there's a sort of dreamy, strange, it's actually a, a fugal thing with uh, lots of the, the, the instruments answering each other with the same material, uh, but very much slowed down. And that leads directly, without interruption, into the finale, which again is this kind of lively, joyful, march sort of piece. Very charming and beautiful piece, and it ends in the most lovely and delicate way with a, a fabulous new theme that hasn't really been stated before, and he only 
spends about, I don't know, 30 seconds on it, and then very gently waves goodbye, and so it ends. So here now, members of the Albany Symphony's wind section, playing Igor Stravinsky's Octet for Winds, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Igor Stravinsky's Octet for Winds, the opening work on our tribute to the great American composer Joan Tower. Next on the program, a very exciting, dare I say, partial world premiere. This is a, a work that Joan actually wrote 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago in the mid-1990s, called Rapids, a 13-minute piece uh, that really is all about what the title suggests, all about water and water imagery and the idea of a pianist piano playing extremely rapidly. That's not a world premiere. That's a, a piece that's been played a great deal has never been recorded, and we're very excited that our performance is going to be the first commercial recording of the piece. But when I spoke to Joan about performing and recording this piece, she said, you know, I've always felt that Rapids really needs a contrasting first movement to give it more body and also to make the the speed of the material seem even more dramatic in contrast to something very, very still. And so uh, much to my delight, she called me about six months ago and said, you know, I've written a slow movement and I want you to play it if you'd like to. No charge, which was wonderful. She was so generous and big hearted. So the piece is now called Still Rapids, two movements, and um, the first movement is just as described. It's this idea of these incredibly still pools of water, and the piano plays simple chords, and these kind of very gentle rocking chords in the strings, and then a little fragment of a horn solo and such, but it's as still as music can be, and because Joan wrote it only in the last six or eight months, it's very mature tower and, and very um, delicate. It, it almost reminds me of Ravel. And then that leads virtually directly via a little, a little cadenza for the solo piano into Rapids. And Rapids is, is the complete antithesis. It, it was written actually uh, in the 90s for the great new music pianist Ursula Oppens, who was to premiere it and who did, did in fact premiere it at a, a concert celebrating a, a major anniversary at the University of Wisconsin in Madison with the student orchestra. And when Ursula's spoke to Joan about the piece and the kind of piece she wanted. She said, I want a really virtuoso solo part. And Joan, being a great pianist herself, was delighted to comply with that. And uh, Ursula, being one of the most dazzling of all new music pianists, had to attack this incredibly challenging piano part, which just has roulades of, of piano, as you would think, in a piece titled uh, Rapids. Uh, but but because the orchestra was a student orchestra, the nice thing is that Joan made the orchestral part not simple, because it's actually remarkably challenging for a student orchestra, but much less busy than the piano part. So in Rapids, you'll hear the piano doing incredibly virtuosic things, two cadenzas where the orchestra kind of stops at various points, one in the middle and one toward the end. Uh, but otherwise, the orchestra really reinforces and colors and reacts to all the incredible virtuosity of the piano. Uh, the soloist Blair McMillan is a great colleague and friend and really an amanuensis of Jones, a colleague at Bard College where they both teach, and we're delighted to welcome him as soloist. So now, uh, the first performance ever of this version of the piece, Still Rapids by Joan Tower for piano and orchestra. Blair McMillan is the piano soloist. The Albany Symphony is conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. To open the second half of our concert, I had asked Joan to invite a young former student of hers. Uh, she's a very distinguished teacher at the Bard uh, College Conservatory and has had many 
excellent, excellent student. So I asked her if she would pick one who was particularly close to her or who she felt really good about to sort of show the continuum from her great predecessors, Beethoven and Stravinsky, through her own music to her uh, descendants, to her musical descendants. And she selected a, a charming and lovely young man named Connor Brown, who graduated from the Bard Conservatory, where he studied with her, and now lives out in his home state of Colorado, where he is, quite interestingly, um, he's formed a, a very unique-sounding band with a, a fellow composer. It's a, kind of a rock jazz, fusion, classical band, but uh, Connor is a fabulous clarinetist and got a dual degree, a double degree uh, at Bard, in addition to getting, I'm sure, a degree outside of the conservatory. Uh, he, he majored both in clarinet performance, where he studied with David Krakauer, and composition, where he studied with Joan. So um, in addition to being a, a very accomplished uh, classical clarinetist, Connor, like his teacher David Krakauer, has delved deeply into klezmer music into Eastern European music, particularly into Turkish music. He's gone to Turkey twice, both to study clarinet playing, a folk clarinet playing, and to study composition there. And so his uh, rock band in Colorado that he's just formed also has a great deal of Turkish and Eastern European musical influence to it. So not surprisingly, the piece that he wrote for us with the rather intriguing title of Babluk, Planet of Hands, is informed by all those things, by his interest in, in pop culture and pop music, particularly in his interest in Turkish music, and also obviously a great deal in the various influences that he derived from Joan and from his studies of, of classical composition with a great dose of the, the minimalists and the post-minimalists like, like John Adams. The piece is organized in three parts. It's only about eight or nine minutes long. The first part is a fabulous, I think, sort of Turkish-sounding thing, and that eventually, after three or four minutes, leads to a, a beautiful, very still, very quiet middle section. You'll know you're there because you'll begin to hear the vibraphone playing these very slow chords, just one chord after another, and then joined by different instruments that color the chords. Very still and beautiful music. Then the third part, extremely contrasting, is a kind of minimalist, fabulously exciting sort of drive to the finish. Connor explained to us that the title Babluk, Planet of Hands, is entirely made up. Uh, the, the word Babluk actually is made up. It sounds to him and to me like a Turkish word, but it's a, it's a made-up Turkish word. A and he talked a lot about planet of hands, this idea of an orchestra being a planet of hands, that it's this whole large group of, of hands working at different kinds of activities and, and coordinating and collaborating. And yet he also had this idea of, of almost like an outer space journey of traveling to the planet Babluk or whatever it may be. So some very exotic, out-of-body experiences in this piece. We found it just very charming and, and wonderful. It's the world premiere of Connor Brown's Babluk, Planet of Hands. Uh, the Albany Symphony is conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was the world premiere of Connor Brown's Babluk, Planet of Hands. Finally, on our concert, in my discussions with Joan Tower about pieces that really were seminal pieces in her development, uh, she talked over and over again about the influence of Beethoven, particularly the incredible intensity of Beethoven's rhythm and the beautiful drive and energy that's derived from that, but also the, the extreme clarity of architecture and also of, of tone color, that Beethoven knows exactly how to say 
what he wants with the sort of fewest amount of instruments and then also manages to create these incredibly robust and brilliant architectural structures. So when Joan and I talked about this many, many months ago, more than a year ago in designing the concert, there were some of the less monumental Beethoven symphonies that we hadn't done in a while, including the first symphony. Uh, and so I suggested that. And she said, well, really what I'd love is one of the more dramatic symphonies to show Beethoven's incredible drama, like the Eroica. And of course, I, I love to do the Eroica. It's a piece that the Albany Symphony and I play every five or six years and could play every year with great excitement because there's so much to find in it and to experience and to, to live through it and to learn from it. She really seemed to want that piece or one of the big pieces. And so it was kind of funny to me because when she came to the pre-concert talk on the first day of the rehearsal period, she said to me, I don't know why you programmed the Eroica. You should have programmed one of the, the, the lighter Beethoven symphonies so I wouldn't look so bad and, you know, being followed by such a monumental piece like the first symphony. And I looked at her and I said, I suggest the first symphony. <laughs> so it turns out that she would have been fine with that. But I must say that uh, the Eroica makes this concert an incredibly epic happening and a very, very exciting finish to this beautiful concert. So uh, the third symphony, of course, called the Eroica, uh, the Italian word for heroic, is not even a, a thinly veiled, but a very direct homage piece to the great Napoleon Bonaparte. It is a, a biographical symphony, as biographical a symphony as Beethoven, or just about anybody but Gustav Mahler ever wrote. And, and it's become pretty clear through the scholarship of the years that n not only did Beethoven originally completely intend to dedicate it to, to Bonaparte and to call it Symphony Number no. 3 Bonaparte, but in essence, even when he changed the title, the scenario, although he made it more general by calling it simply Eroica, really, in essence, was his version of telling the story of a sort of idealized Bonaparte. You probably know the perhaps somewhat apocryphal story, but actually the, the gist of it is absolutely right. Whether these events happen exactly as they were described by his later biographers is, is more of a question, but it, it seems to be pretty clear that Beethoven did have a title page on the symphony that said, Symphony Number no. 3, Bonaparte, and that when Beethoven was informed in 1804 that Napoleon had had himself crowned emperor, Beethoven, in a fit of anger, you know, at the betrayal of what he thought were the democratic ideals of the great conqueror, in disgust, ripped that page out or crossed out the name Bonaparte and renamed the piece Eroica. Essentially, that, that happened. How exactly it happened, we're not sure. I don't think the, the actual cover page has ever been found. But but it's clear that Beethoven had a great, not only respect for, but, but incredible admiration for the idealized idea of Bonaparte, as so many people across Europe in the early 1800s did. I mean, he he, of course, was, um, you know, looking back at him, he was a, 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 a terrible, <laughs> uh, I don't know, a great and terrible figure in that so many people had to die for his conquests of Europe and so much of the world. And yet uh, he also represented this heroic ideal to people of the, the age and the time both in the ways he sort of pulled France out of the, the terrors of the reign of terror after the revolution, but also for this incredible heroic ideal of this one little man going into the world and conquering everyone and everything. And up to the time he proclaimed himself emperor, or certainly until the time he became the first consul, he did espouse these ideas of uh, liberty and democracy and, and equality and all those great French ideals. It was only later that he betrayed them, and even in his betrayal of them, uh, he did manage to put into play in all of these empires that he conquered a great number of democratic reforms. And so Beethoven, even after Bonaparte named himself emperor, like so many Europeans, was very conflicted in his views about Bonaparte and whether he was a hero or a tyrant. 
That being the case, the work is, of course, an almost 50-minute long orchestral tour de force of essentially abstract music, four movements, of course, that first bracing movement uh, with those slashing chords, bum, bum, very unusual to have a first movement of a symphony in three, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. Very strange idea in itself. And then the idea that Beethoven writes this monumental, long first movement that's essentially longer than most complete symphonies of the time or of of earlier times of Haydn and Mozart and and that era, and this unbelievable architectural construct with this incredible crisis in the middle uh, is a a daring sort of first shot across the bow of this symphony being a whole new way, a whole new way of creating symphonies and of telling essentially stories through your symphony. So in essence, I always think of this first movement as being somehow connected to the, the ideal of Napoleon in battle, of the great general, of war, of strength strife, of torment, of uh, all those those things. The second movement, the funeral march, the march funebre, an adagio, a slow, very, adagio assai, a very slow adagio. In essence, I'm not sure exactly what it tells, but it certainly is a funeral march and has a slow tread and some of the most agonizingly painfully beautiful music ever created by anybody in the heart in the middle of this movement. This is such an epic movement and such a a programmatic movement as to what the story it tells is. It's not for me nor for anybody to to tell you what that is. It's for each listener to find his or her own narrative for this movement. It could perhaps be the great general walking through a battlefield, as has sometimes been suggested. I often think of it as the the great hero wrestling with his own death and, and his own pain and anguish, although it's sort of strange to think about that happening before the third and fourth movements. Whatever it may be, it certainly is a a movement that's all wrapped up with the idea of mortality, of tragedy, of death, of defeat. The third movement, an unbelievable contrast to that. I'd always been taught to believe that the opening, this very uh, staccato, very short notes, was you know perhaps shooting in the distance of the soldiers. But I happened recently upon a scholarly account that says that it is in fact a drinking song, not surprisingly, of the era. And perhaps that Beethoven's idea of using that material was to sort of just show the soldiers at play or the soldiers getting drunk. In the middle of this scherzo, the third movement, is a trio, as is always the case, and the trio is this fabulous set of the the three horns, an unusual orchestration. One of the many, many amazing things about the Eroica is, of course, Beethoven writes this absolute epic, crashing, changing, life-changing piece, but uses essentially the same orchestra that Haydn and Mozart and his his predecessors, his antecedents did. And yet he adds one horn. And the reason he adds the one horn is to give him the chance to write this wonderful horn call section that sounds, of course, like calling the the troops to battle in the middle of the the third movement. Uh, He uses the three horns so he can make actual three-note chords. If he only had two horns, he wouldn't be able to do that. And then the the livelier uh, drunken or shooting music comes back. The finale is the most uh, mysterious movement in that it's a set of of incredibly inventive, very joyful variations, uh, a set of variations on a theme that he had used over and over again. He had first used it in his music uh, for the Creatures of Prometheus, a ballet he'd written probably some ten, nine or ten years before, uh, and had also made variations for the finale of that uh, from this very theme. And then he liked the theme so much, he made a set of piano variations for it. And then he decided once again, third time, to use this very theme, which obviously had some incredibly strong meaning to him, as the finale theme for the Third Symphony. 
It's a little bit of a question as to whether the theme is in fact this tune. Ta da da dum ta da da dum bum 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 ba bum ba da dum ta da dum ta dum, or is in fact the sort of harmonic underpinning of it? Because strangely, after the sort of flourishing introduction, open the opening of five seconds, six seconds, there's a pause, and then you hear bum 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. Just the skeletal outline of what will become that subject or that theme. So uh, Beethoven then writes these incredible, joyful, inventive, crazy variations at a blistering tempo, finally arriving at a big hymn version of, of the theme, and then bringing us home with a sort of crashing, bashing, wildly exciting ending to the movement. Uh, as to what exactly this finale meant to Beethoven, there's so much speculation, and so much of it is, is just not clear. Perhaps it was something about the, the great hero bringing to his people, bringing to the public peace and prosperity and joy and serenity and happiness, all the things that these variations suggest, or maybe it's something entirely other. It's just that I, I have this feeling as I as I work on this piece over and over again and as I perform it, that it's so closely connected to Beethoven's ideas of heroism and of what the idealized image of Bonaparte meant. I shall just mention quickly about the, the tempos, about the speed of the piece. 15 or 20 years ago, I was often criticized by listeners for taking breakneck tempos when I played Beethoven. And I always had to defend myself by explaining that, in fact, these are Beethoven's tempi. In fact, the finale isn't quite Beethoven's tempo because at Beethoven's tempo, it's so fast that it's almost unplayable. Uh, Beethoven went back to all of his symphonies in 1817 after he'd written all but the Ninth Symphony and with this newfangled machine, the metronome that had been invented by his friend Maelzel, he ascribed general ideal tempi to all the movements of the first eight symphonies. So we have Beethoven's own speeds, tempos for these these pieces and each movement. And more interesting even than that, we have his thoughts on that from a distance of about, you know, 10 or more years as he's heard the pieces, worked on the pieces, performed the pieces, had the pieces performed. So it's not like he just sort of made them up and stuck them in. He actually considered it and then put in what he thought would be the, the best general tempi. I don't believe we should slavishly observe them, but I think they tell us a great deal about how Beethoven intended these pieces to go. Needless to say, in the 19th century, conductors like Richard Wagner and all the conductors who followed him, Furtwängler and Nikisch and Bruno Walter and so on, in the 19th and 20th century, really heard Beethoven in more 19th century terms. Dare I say, Wagner heard Beethoven as a really great Wagnerian composer. And he slowed the pieces down to unbelievable half-tempo and such and played them in the most lugubrious dramatic, heroic uh, fashion with complete disregard to the speeds that Beethoven had given. And uh, so it was only in the last 20 or 30 years with the rise of the authentic performance practice movement, the early instrument movement, that conductors have gone back to really attending to Beethoven's metronome marks. And, and I must say, I, I think they're wonderful tempos, and they make these pieces sound so much as if they grow out of the world of Mozart and Haydn. Uh, they're much more fleet. They're much more brilliant. I think they're much more dramatic. So there's been this whole sort of corrective movement to play these pieces much closer to Beethoven's tempi, and that's the way I play this piece. So if you think the tempos are too fast, don't blame me. You have to blame Mr. Ludwig van Beethoven himself. So here now, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 3, the Eroica, performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.